Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What Not to Wear is a popular makeover show that spends $5,000 to replace the subject's wardrobe and show them how to dress and groom themselves better. In being raised with Christ, we undergo a spiritual makeover, putting away the old and putting on the new so that we will appear with Him in glory. Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, Rebellion Against Rebellion, which covers Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Thank you for joining us today. You know, I don't know how the health insurance thing works uh, where you work, and I can't stand there. I got to walk around, okay? I don't know how the health insurance thing works where you work, but here at Perimeter, the primarily insured, which is me and, and our family, have to undergo an annual health screening. And that's always a lot of fun, you know? Uh, first of all, because you have to fast for 12 hours, and that's tough for me. I always try to sign up for the health screening as early in the morning as I can because the health screening is standing between me and breakfast, and I don't like that. I love breakfast. So uh, this last time that it occurred was just this last Tuesday. So I showed up as early as I could here, signed up early, got here to the church, and I was sitting in the waiting area along with Randy Schlichting and some other people waiting to be, you know, measured and weighed and poked and prodded and questioned and interrogated and have my blood drawn and all that kind of stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, uh, as I was sitting there waiting rather, I was thinking, I have developed through the years a personal health screening tradition. And my personal health screening tradition is that to reward myself for all my time and trouble and for the the normally good marks I get, after the health screening, I always go to Waffle House for breakfast. (laughs) Does Does that not seem to fit to you, health screening, Waffle House? And so as I was talking to Randy and some other people Tuesday morning, I realized that's not very consistent. So I decided I would go to Subway and get the flatbread egg white breakfast sandwich, and I was so proud of myself. And I got there and Subway was closed, so I buckled and went to Waffle House. (laughs) But I want you to know I did not get any bacon. No bacon, so let it be noted, February 2013, Cargo went to Waffle House, passed the bacon. Now, you know, that's a sort of a, a little example in some ways, and maybe because of God's goodness to me with my metabolism, it may not be as serious for me to go to Waffle House as maybe someone else, but uh, don't we all have areas of our lives that we know are inconsistent? Uh, we, we say one thing, we profess one thing, we're aiming for one thing, but our actions point in a different direction. The message today is very much about having an alignment, a greater alignment between what we say we believe and the attitudes we harbor, the words we speak, and the actions that we embrace and we pursue. Now, the example I've given you today is probably just sort of a little kind of example, a humorous kind of example. I promise you there are deeper, greater things in my life. But if you're a follower of Jesus as I am, you know, don't you, about the battle for obedience. And that's what we're talking about today, the battle for obedience. We're in the last part, the third week of a three-week series entitled Every Square Inch. The term every square inch comes from a quote by Abraham Kuyper. He was a statesman, a journalist, and a theologian who lived in the Netherlands. In fact, from 1901 to 1905, Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands. And in one of his works, he famously said this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence 
over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Well said. Jesus is Lord of all, every square inch of the universe, every square inch of our human existence. This comment by Kuiper also made me think about a famous saying by C.S. Lewis, that, that great 20th century British professor of literature in Oxford, England, who was a convert from agnosticism to Christianity. And Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity, is, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So well said. I think perhaps the greatest enemy of genuine Christianity would be those people who would claim to be followers of Jesus, but in every practical way, they have made Christ only moderately important in their lives. That's what holds us up. This series, Every Square Inch, is taken from the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a letter by the Apostle Paul written in about 60 AD to the people who lived in a certain city called Colossae. It was in what was then called Asia Minor, now in the nation of Turkey. And those followers of Jesus in Colossae were undergoing a lot of pressure. They were having a lot of overt and covert pressure to live lives just like all the other people of the Roman Empire. And on top of that, there was a heresy about who Jesus is that was circulating there in their city and in that region of the world. And so the Apostle Paul writes them this letter and he basically says this, let your lives be positively and winsomely different than most of all the other people in the Roman Empire. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And though you were subjects of the Roman Empire, you are primarily subjects of the kingdom of Jesus, and therefore your lives need to be different than everybody else's. This series was kicked off two weeks ago by David McNeely. He preached from chapter one of Colossians, a sermon called A Worthy Walk. And in that message, David said, basically, our lives need to be characterized by good works, by seeking to please the Lord, by a right knowledge of God, by endurance and patience and joy and thanksgiving. And the reason is God has set us free to be in his kingdom. A couple of key verses of the whole book are verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. This is what it says. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption means to be set free. And as David pointed out so well two weeks ago, we have been set free. We have a freedom that we're not to use selfishly. We're to use that freedom to honor our king and bring glory to him. Then last week, Mike Goheen, our guest minister, preached about the main part of Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus has preeminence over all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the head of the church. In every way, in all possible ways, Jesus has the supremacy. And he is Lord over every square inch. And therefore, our lives need to be different. And today, we look at a third reason our lives are to be positively and winsomely different. And that is, we're new people. We have a new identity. We're subjects of a new kingdom. And we have a new destiny. Goheen has used the word, and I like this, that we're a contrast people. 
You know how when you look at an x-ray, there's the black and the white, and you see things clearly because they are in contrast. We are to be a contrast culture to the culture around us in a positive way. As Goheen has put it, we are people of the resurrection because Jesus' resurrection has changed everything. As we're going to see today, we, in a mystical, powerful way, participate in that resurrection. A contrast people, people of the resurrection. Another way I like to think of it is that we're the rebellion against the rebellion. I just heard this illustration not long ago. You know, with the movie about Lincoln having come out, there's a lot of talk these days about the Civil War. I wasn't aware of this, but the state of Tennessee was one of the last states in the South to secede from the Union. Finally, they came out of the Union and they seceded. But there were a lot of people in East Tennessee, in fact, much of East Tennessee, that was much more loyal to the Union than to the Confederacy. And so when Tennessee seceded from the Union... The people of Union County and some other places around East Tennessee seceded from the state of Tennessee. They were, if you would, they were the rebellion against the rebellion. Now, as much as it pains me as a native of of Alabama who's lived in Georgia for many years and having lived in Chicago and in Orlando, I hate to put it this way, my, my hat is tipped to Bill Wood and other people from East Tennessee. We are the East Tennessee of the world is what is the illustration here. Do you get the idea? We are the rebellion against the rebellion. Jesus is the rightful Lord and master and king of the universe. And he's holy and he's good and he's gracious. And the world is in rebellion against him. And we're the rebellion against the rebellion. Now the question we're going to look at today is this. What does this rebel lifestyle look like? What does it look like to be the rebellion against the rebellion? We want to see how the resurrection has changed things. So we want to see here a resurrection reality, resurrection ethics, resurrection relationships, and resurrection worship. This reality brings us new ethics, a new lifestyle, new relationships, and it all gets reinforced through resurrection worship. Mike Goheen has asked me to cover a lot today, so let's dig in as we look at 17 verses in Colossians chapter 3. Start with me, please, at verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. So let me just give you a heads up. As I read these passages of Scripture, I'm not going to re-paraphrase them. Focus. I'm going to talk about them, but I'm not going to regurgitate them. So focus as I read. Verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. A key phrase. Hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This gives us a resurrection reality, a resurrection reality. Now, this doesn't mean that heavenly things are good and earthly things are bad. That's called dualism. We don't believe in dualism. It doesn't mean that physical things are evil and spiritual things are good. It means that things of this earth are defined and given meaning by these eternal things. That we have our hearts and minds on a kingdom that is eternal, that is centered upon Christ. And that gives meaning to everything else we do here. It's the idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead and his life and death and resurrection is brought in the kingdom of God. We have been somehow by the spirit of God mystically united with Jesus Christ and his life, death and resurrection. And therefore, the focus of our hearts the focus of our faith, the focus of our life 
is Jesus himself. That's what it's all about. Let me see if I can explain it this way. As a good Jew, Paul had always believed that there would someday come the Messiah. And when the Messiah arrived, there would be a new age to come that would be ushered in. The age of, of the Messiah, the messianic kingdom. But after Paul was converted, he began to see and understand that that kingdom had been inaugurated, it had been launched in the first coming of Jesus. So the kingdom is not fully revealed, but the kingdom has arrived. In fact, here's a chart that explains Paul's understanding of this after his conversion. Paul understood that he was living at the time of the power of the kingdom of darkness that was working in the Roman Empire. And in truth, all human cultures are a mix of the goodness of the fact that we're made of the image of God, and every culture in some way expresses the goodness of the image of God, but also because all cultures are fallen, there's a power of darkness. There's a fallenness about our world, this rebelling against the Lord Jesus. And it expresses itself in different ways in different cultures. It was expressing itself in significant ways in the Roman culture. And Mike Goheen pointed those out last week. And, uh, and he did a great job at that. Well, when Jesus came, Jesus ushered in a new kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is in the process of renewing all things. Jesus came, he ascended back to heaven, and someday Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, it's the total end of the old age. And it is the fulfillment, the consummation of the age to come. You and I are living in the overlap of the ages. You and I are living, in a sense, between the ages. I like how one preacher put it, a guy that I had breakfast with this last week. He said, we are living in the present as future people. I love that. We're living in the present as future people. We're defined by this kingdom, but now we are pulled between these two kingdoms. This is what's happened here. Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension has brought in a new kingdom, and we experience its power. Now, how do we do that? We experience it, his power because of our union with Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. He says, your life is hidden with Christ. You've been united with Christ and raised up with him. It's what we call the mystical union of a believer with Christ. And in it, somehow, we have joined in with his life, death, and resurrection, and we get all the benefits of that. We're raised to newness of life. Let me give you a picture of that out of the Old Testament. It's the story of the prophet Elisha and a woman who was a Shunammite. She was not an Israelite. She was a Shunammite. But she and her husband believed in the Lord, and they believed and honored the prophet Elisha, so much so that they prepared a guest room in their home so that when Elisha was in their area, they, he had a place to stay in their home. Well, they were not able to conceive any children, and she talked with Elisha about this. And Elisha prayed, and she conceived from her husband and gave birth to a son. Well, as that little boy was growing up, one day he was out in the fields at harvest time with his father and with the servants as they were reaping the harvest. And he began to complain that his head was hurting. And so the father turned to one of the servants and said, take the boy and take him to his mother because he's ill. The servant took the little boy to his mother and he put the boy in his mother's lap. And the story goes that the boy stayed in his mother's lap until about noon of that day and then he died. 
Well, the woman grieved. She took the little boy and she put him upon the bed of Elisha in the guest room. And then she sent the servants to find her husband's permission, so to speak, and the wherewithal to get some servants and, and a cart and other things to go get Elijah and bring him back. And so as quickly as they could, they got Elijah and brought him back. Elijah went into the guest room where the boy lay dead upon the bed. He closed the door and he prayed. And then he did something very strange, but very, very uh, illustrative of how we are saved and made alive. He laid down upon the boy, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, and he prayed, and the boy's body became warm. Then Elisha got up and walked around the room again and prayed, and again, he covered the boy. He covered the boy. The boy sneezed seven times. He coughed. He woke up. He was raised from the dead. Miraculous picture of our salvation. Because on the cross, what did Jesus do? He spread himself out over us. And the the guilt and the punishment and death that we should have experienced, he experienced in our place. And then somehow his life comes to us and we are raised from the dead spiritually. We are given new life and we share in his resurrection because he has covered us and we are hidden with him. Just as God looked upon the boy and saw Elisha, God looks at us and he sees a righteous, slain, and risen Savior, and we participate in that resurrection. As I said already, this doesn't mean that earthly things are evil. It means instead that those things are redefined, as Goheen taught us last week so well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth find their rightful place in the light of his glory and grace. What this says is we live our lives focused on Jesus We live our lives with our faith in Jesus. We are raised with him. We're given new life in him. And though the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that to us, our faith is in Jesus and our focus is on Jesus. That's the resurrection reality. Now from that, Paul then describes a resurrection ethic, a resurrection lifestyle. That's the second main thing we look at today. Not only a resurrection reality, but resurrection ethics, resurrection lifestyle. Look at it, please, in verses 5 through 11. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's the bad news of Christianity. But here's the good news. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but you've been changed. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self. Your old self is who you were before you were born again. You took it off when you were converted, and you have put on the new self, that is, the new regenerate born again you, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, all the old human categories that divided people go away. We are one in Christ. And Paul basically says here, you have a new identity. You're a new person, a new new kingdom. Therefore, like an old set of clothes that just don't fit any longer, take off the old way of living. That's for the old kingdom. And put on a new set of clothes, a new way of living that fits with the new kingdom that God has put you in. 
Here's another chart that explains this new way of life that we would have. Working out our new identity in a new way of life. Paul says, you have put off the old self. You have put on the new self. Therefore, strip off and put to death the old way of life. It's what the theologians from centuries ago called the mortification of sin. Be killing sin or it will kill you. So actively be putting to death these sinful patterns in your life. And instead, clothe yourself and live a new way of living. Now, this list is too long to go through verse by verse. It finds cultural expressions back in Rome, and it does here today. But I just have a couple of observations about these things that Paul has listed. First of all, I want you to notice that all the things that Paul talks about here are good gifts of God that we should receive with humility and thankfulness and obedience that everything would have its right place when we see it in light of Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of this. Fire is a very good thing if it's in the right place. If fire is in the right place, it warms us, it cooks our food, it provides energy for all kinds of good things. But if fire is in the wrong place, it destroys. And Paul basically says of all these things, these are good gifts of God to us. Our sexuality Our sexual desires are to be lived out in the context of marriage. They're good there. But when we live them out outside of that context, they become destructive to our souls and to our families and to our relationships and to our culture. It's very good that we can have physical and material possessions lived out with a right understanding under the lordship of Jesus. Those are blessings. But if idolatry and greed take over, those possessions can become destructive to us. It's great that God has given us passions and emotions and lived in the right way and directed toward the right things. It's good to be passionate. But when those things start serving, when those emotions start serving a selfish, idolatrous, greedy heart, it spills over into rage and anger and malice against other people. And then those destructive emotions spill over with destructive words and we use our tongue the wrong way. These are good gifts of the Lord, all these things. But when we put them in the wrong place and use them in the wrong wrong way, they are destructive. Paul says, put off using these in the wrong way. Put on using them in the right way. My second observation is simply this, that greed and idolatry are at the heart of the misuse of all these things. And therefore, there has to be a daily repentance away from greed and idolatry. Daily deciding to take off the old way of living. Daily deciding to put on the new way of living. It is a daily choice. Yesterday's decision doesn't help us today in some ways. Daily choosing to live a life of repentance. And why should we do this and why are we able? Why is our duty? Because we're members of a new kingdom. And Jesus is our king. And it's our responsibility. And it's his power that enables us to do it. Put off the old way of living. There's a resurrection reality. There's a resurrection lifestyle, a resurrection ethic. Thirdly, we see in this passage, there are resurrection relationships. Resurrection relationships. How are the people of the resurrection supposed to treat each other? Here it is, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. You know, our relationships with one another is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. I don't know how people out in the world make it when they go through hard things, because I know how we help each other in the body of Christ. And not only during a crisis, during all of life, we are a good gift to one another. Now, if I give an expensive gift to my children, I want them to handle it carefully. Jesus has died for your brothers and sisters, for them to be a gift to you and you to be a gift to them. Therefore, handle these relationships with care. Pursue unity with one another. And that's what this passage is saying. Look again at verse 12. Notice here, the basis of our unity is that we're a chosen people, holy and dearly loved. The attitudes that build unity are compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We preserve unity by bearing with each other and just putting up with each other, not taking offense at little things. And then when that unity is broken, there's the restoration of our unity by forgiving each other whatever grievances we would have. And the thing that makes all of this fit, the umbrella over it all, is putting on love. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're called to have the peace of Jesus in us. We're called to exhibit the peace of Jesus between us. This is the kind of powerful resurrection relationship that we're to have. Not only are our relationships a great gift of God to us, it's a powerful witness to the watching world. Jesus said, by all this will men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. When people see us loving each other deeply, it tells them that this kingdom of God is real. Resurrection relationships, a great gift, a powerful witness. It flows from resurrection ethics and out of a resurrection reality. Here's another chart that tells us a little bit about how all this really is, in a sense, a foretaste, a deposit of the kingdom to come. He says, put off the way of idolatry. Put aside sexual sins and greed and hostility and sins of the tongue. That belongs to the old kingdom. Live in a way that is congruent with the age to come. Put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, forbearance, love, unity, peace, wisdom, worship, comprehensive obedience. When I look at that list, it makes me long for when the kingdom will come in its fullness. And this is all that we know. And there's no battle between the old and the new. Embracing a new kind of relationship because we're new people. A resurrection reality, resurrection ethics, resurrection relationships, and lastly, resurrection worship. Resurrection worship. Every week we have a chance to be recalibrated to the gospel and every week we have a chance together to proclaim the gospel. And we do it through worship. Look at verses 16 and 17, please. This is what Paul says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you notice how the word of God, or as Paul expresses it here, the word of Christ, because for us Christ is central to the word of God, have you ever noticed how the word of Christ is central to our worship? Well, it should be. And Paul says here, let it dwell in you. Let the word of God make its home in your heart. 
so that as we sing God's word to one another, it goes down into our hearts. As we speak God's word to one another, as I speak it, as you hear it, it goes down into our hearts and changes us. That's central to worship. And he goes on to say, not only does that happen in our worship on a weekly basis, all week long, whatever we do, we do it to the name of Jesus. We live a life of worship Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. I want you to notice here before we move on how central gratitude is. At the end of verse 16, singing with gratitude in your hearts. End of verse 17, giving thanks to God. Thankfulness is a great theme of the book of Colossians. And one commentator has said this. I think he is so insightful. Gratitude to God is the main characteristic of God's people. Wow. Gratitude to God is the main characteristic of God's people. Wow. That makes us a contrast people in a culture that is always screaming for its rights and always playing the victim. But not us. We're grateful for what God gives. This kind of worship recalibrates us to the gospel. It proclaims the gospel. Resurrection reality, resurrection ethics, resurrection relationships, resurrection worship. We're people of the resurrection. We're a contrast people. We are the rebellion against the rebellion. I grew up under a preacher who, uh, like a lot of men of his generation in the South, had grown up on the farm. And he had a little story that illustrates just how personal Christianity is. It's the story of a farmer who went to a certain church, and for months and months, even years, that preacher had preached sermons where he told Bible stories, and he talked about Jesus, and he talked about Christian doctrine. And then all of a sudden, the preacher started preaching sermons about like, things like how you treat your wife and what you do with your money and, and, and how you live life every day. And he turned to his wife and nudged her, and he said, you know, the preacher has stopped preaching, and now he has started meddling, Okay. Well, I want you to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus will meddle with every part of your life. Jesus will mess with every part of your life. Jesus will demand and change, perhaps, every part of your life because Jesus is Lord of all. My pastor had another little saying that came from the farm, and it was this. When a man finds Jesus, even his mule ought to know it. (laughs) How well said. When a man finds Jesus, even the way he treats his animals will change. The way he acts at work will change. Everything will change because Jesus is Lord of every square inch. That's the message of Colossians. Jesus is Lord of all. And there's just one last chart I want to give you, and it's this chart. It says Christianity is not fear, pride, and self-righteousness leading to quote-unquote moral behavior. This is not the reason we act the way we do. It's not pride. It's not fear. It's not self-righteousness. And Christianity is not, also not grace, quote-unquote, just leading to cultural conformity and immorality. If we're conforming entirely to the culture and living lives of immorality, we haven't experienced the real grace of God at all. But this is Christianity. It is the grace of Christ the Lord leading to our living as a contrast people, people of the resurrection. The last question is simply this, How? How in the world can I live this kind of life? And we go back to what was said before, living in union with Christ. This is the way Paul puts it in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. We could paraphrase that or translate it or interpret it. Walk in union with him. Live out your union with Christ. That's the way you do it. Having been firmly rooted And now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And look again, overflowing with gratitude. I love the way one 
Bible has paraphrased this. It says, let the roots of your life go deep into Jesus. In other words, it's from Jesus that we get the nourishment for our souls that we need. It's from Jesus that we get the strength that we need to live a different kind of life. So how can we even approach living a life like this? It's by living in union with Christ. Our faith is in him. Our focus is upon him. The truth of the matter is none of us will ever bat a thousand in any one of our days. This passage has warned us that the wrath of God is going to come because of sins like these. When I look at this passage, I shudder a little bit because I know I'm guilty in my heart and in my life of all these things. So what do I do about my guilt? What's the solution to my guilt? It is also my union with Christ. My only hope is that I'm hidden in Christ. And when God looks at me, he sees not me. He sees a perfect Savior who has spread out over me, who has lived his life for me, who has died a painful death for me, who has been raised for me. And that's the answer to my guilt. I'm hidden in Christ. In Exodus chapter 33, there's a story that Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God said, no, because you won't survive seeing my glory. But instead, God says this to Moses in Exodus 33. He says, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face you may not see. What was the cleft of the rock? The cleft of the rock was a picture of Jesus because the cleft of the rock saved Moses from the judgment of God but provided the nearness of God. My friends, that is what Jesus does for us. He saves us from the judgment of God while providing the nearness of God. And so what do you do with your guilt? What do I do with my guilt? There's only one thing we can do. Hide in the cleft of the rock. Put yourself by faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus and let him as a person of the resurrection take away your guilt, make you a new person. My friends, we are the rebellion against the rebellion. We're the people of the resurrection. Let people see a different way of living that gives praise to our King. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we... Know that every day we fail in every way in living this kind of life. We ask you that even today we would find comfort by hiding ourselves in the Lord Jesus who has died for us. That he would save us from the penalty of our sin and he would deliver us from your judgment while bringing you near to us. Thank you that that's what Jesus has done. We ask you now that we would every day draw upon that resurrection power Every day, a little bit more than yesterday, killing sin and mortifying the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit, that we might live in a way that gives to other people a foretaste of the kingdom to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.